Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This show is probably should be called Mac and Mabel. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. Mabel Normand is a much more interesting and valuable person to not only cinema, but to the story than the musical Let's Her Be. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. But they had Robert Preston. Yeah. Well, there you go. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing the musical Mac and Mabel, which was a listener request from both Bobby and Avery. Thank you so much to both of you for writing in. I've also requested Mac and Mabel before. Let's listen back to a past episode. For me, I think... I got to go with the Mac and Mabel. I know that everybody wants to fix that show, but I just really want that show to succeed so much. It's Jerry Herman. It's tap dancing. It's a fantastic score. That overture, like that overture deserves to be in a show that's considered a hit. Yes, I find this musical flop fascinating. And you know, here on a musical theater podcast, the F word is not a bad word. And by F word, I mean flop. So here to chat with me about this fascinating show is someone I've looked up to for a very long time. He might not know that. He's the founding editor of Playbill.com, which means, Robert, you were very instrumental in my dial-up internet adolescence. I remember going to Playbill daily and like picking one article to click. And then I'd have to go make a sandwich because that's how long it took for the article to come up. And then <laughs> by the time I had to come back, I could read it. Anyway. Yeah, that was back in the old days when they had to actually shovel the coal into the computers <laughs> and work up a head of steam before you could. Oh, my God. I actually, uh, thousands of years ago, I actually owned a 9600 baud um, connector for the internet. And when I would write a review, usually about 500 words, it took 15 minutes to upload to the newspaper. Oh, Newspapers are what they had before the internet. <laughs> Um, <laughs> That's but you know, when I started, I had always wanted to do a, uh, a newspaper. I, I love newspapers yeah. and I wanted to do a newspaper, uh, only of theater. Mm. I didn't cause I, I had my internship at Newsday, which is a big newspaper here on Long Island. And uh, I started, I had an, uh, a column in my local paper when I was 17 years old reviewing, uh, theater. So I was 17. The oh bug bit early, and uh, wow. I couldn't understand why newspapers wouldn't put theater on the front page, especially New York area newspapers. It's such an important part of the culture and the the, the, the whole the economy of Absolutely. of the area. And um, oh, and and I, you know, I thought to myself, someday I'm going to start a newspaper, and there'll be theater on the front page every day. But then the internet came along, and I said. I could have my newspaper with theater on the front page every day. Exactly. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, that was the beginning of playbill.com, but I had that idea when I was a teenager. That's incredible. Well, I'm so grateful because it meant that like a little a little kid like me in Willard, Utah didn't have to live in New York in order to see the front page of uh, of your theater newspaper. So Well, that was that was it. Even in New York they they don't cover theater that much. And other places around the country, when there was a scandal, there would be something. When there was a big sure. flop, there would be something. And the Tony Awards. That's the only, I mean, you. Yeah. am that's I wrong? Nope. That's mostly nope. what people. Even to the So state. it gave people the idea that theater was something that was happen- that happened long ago and far away. And I wanted to convey that it was something that was alive and it was something that was happening right now. And it was exciting and cool things were opening. Wow. And, uh, and that gave me a chance to do it. Well, on behalf of everybody, thank you so much for doing so. A- anyway, everyone, please welcome Robert Viagas. I'm so sorry. We <laughs> that was like the longest introduction ever. But yay, I'm so grateful <laughs> you're here. <laughs> My pleasure. And thank you for having me. Uh, you're also an accomplished author and penned in my opinion, the best book ever on A Chorus Line called On the Line, which was assigned reading to me by my director choreographer the first time I did that show. So hopefully every time Hector Guerrero does A Chorus Line somewhere, you see a, a couple of coins come your way. Um, still friends with Bayork Lee. We are still you? see each other. Oh, Tommy beautiful. is no longer with us, of unfortunately. Course. But Bayork, she's still she's still out there directing shows. She directs all over the world. She's an amazing person. Yeah. 
Well deserved to win that that special uh, Liz, uh, Isabel Stevenson Award from the Tonys a few years back. Mm. I was so proud. That's fantastic. So talk to me. I, obviously, you have a, a great relationship with the chorus line. You also wrote a book about the Fantastics. What's your relationship like with Jerry Herman? How do you feel about the Herm? I was always a, a huge fan of, of Jerry Herman. As a matter of fact, for six years, I had a show on what's now Sirius XM. And I had Jerry come up, mm. and we talked for an hour. Oh. Can you imagine oh. me just face-to-face with Jerry Herman? I, 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 I couldn't get over it. I was so excited to have oh, him in there. That's wonderful. Because I had always liked his shows. And, um, and I have to tell you, I started my interest in theater ju- like at just the right moment. I, I saw my first show in 1971. So I got to see the like last shows of all these big stars. Just like one terrific star, you know, people who had Yul Brenner and uh, right. and all these people from the, and Zero Mostel and and all these wonderful, wonderful people from the the forties and fifties and sixties. They were kind of at the end of their careers, so I was so happy that Jerry was still in the in the prime of his songwriting time. And of course, we all knew that there was. He had done Hello, Dolly. We knew he had done Mame. And he did Dear World, which was not a hit. But, you know, even Rodgers and Hammerstein had a couple of flops. Absolutely. Um, pipe so, uh, <laughs> so when we heard, and when, it was 1974, so when I say we, I was 18 at that time. And I had a uh, my column in my local newspaper. It, it was Robert Preston from The Music Man. Which, was going to be in a musical by Jerry Herman, and at that time, Bernadette was, she was young, and she was red hot from having done Dames at Sea. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, oh, and he's getting together the old team, all the people who worked on Dolly are going to be doing this show, and Michael it's about Stewart. show business. Yes. And, it's, and, it, and I have to tell you, for for those of us who love musical theater, and you know, at that time, um, I have to say, I grew up in a blue-collar community, so there were very few other theater lovers in, in my school. Um, I was I, I played the lead two years in a row in my high school musicals, and I'm terrible. Get it, Robert? Uh, I'm terrible, <laughs> but um, but you know I'm tall, I'm male, and I show up to rehearsals. And in high school, that's that's key to that's success. That's how you book. Absolutely. That's right. So so, but when I heard that this thing was coming, I was I like was out of my mind with excitement because I thought I was going to see the next uh, Hello Dolly. And I remember going in uh, to the, the the theater to see the show, and it was one of the big Broadway theaters. And and uh, Preston comes out very early on, and he uh, uh, and he sings uh, when movies were movies. Yes. Well, first of all, uh, for, uh, let me go back. The overture. Oh the my overture, gosh. Oh. That overture kills. No. All it's... of Jerry's overtures are great. They all but think this you, one think in particular, see the greatest show you ever saw in your life. Yes. Um, so after the, and there was the the melodies and it's like oh there's like the you know he always has like a hello dolly song in one of his shows right where the leading lady comes back mm-hmm. and everybody gets excited. and everybody has to introduce her with this anthem right so when I heard uh, Mabel come in the room from the overture even though I hadn't I hadn't seen or heard a thing about the show other than the the names because there was no playbill.com then. Um, <laughs> I thought to myself, oh, that's the song. That's the Hello, Dolly She's going to come back. Absolutely. She's going to come back from somewhere, and everybody's going to get all excited, and they're going to sing about the magnolias and the uh, (laughs) The corn from Mame. Um, But, um, you know, it was so wonderful to see the two of them. They came out, they sang, and and gradually, over the course of the first act, you start to think, you know, this this just just doesn't have the electricity. But I'm sure it's going to be great in the second act. Yeah. I didn't realize at that point how problematic second acts generally are. But right. I thought, oh, all right, the first act may be a little weak, but the second act is going to be sensational. And then the songs would start, and you go, okay, okay, now we're We're back in, we're and, back in. And then they would get back to uh, Michael Stewart's book. Michael Stewart is a wonderful librettist and lyricist. He also did some lyrics for uh, uh, a couple of Cy Coleman shows. Absolutely. Barnum. So I was a little disappointed, and I thought, well, maybe I didn't care for it, but I'm 18, what do I know? Well, and that's uh, I'm the sure thing, the critics right? will love it. I'm sure they'll love it, and they didn't. It's such an interesting phenomenon when you go into a show like that, and there's this. It's I don't want to call it an impending doom, but there's this feeling of, uh oh, <laughs> like, are we? Is is this show in trouble? You know what I mean? I I felt yeah. that way when I went and saw Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. That was like my first experience of of that. When, David Yazbek musical. You're like, David Yazbek score, this cast insane. And then it starts going and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> huh. There's too many stories going on right. here. 
But um, but fascinating. Laura Benanti has that solo that 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 a top speed solo, and you're thinking, oh, that finally the show's up to up to up to up to snuff. Yeah, and then no, no. and then no. But like, I as I always say on this show, th- those are things that make me even more grateful to be able to witness it. You know, it 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 reaffirms the ephemeral nature of theater and the the You're great right. honor we have to see to like sit in a space with other people and figure out like what exactly is happening what is our relationship to it i i'm just i'm endlessly fascinated by these types of shows and so when you have a a, a big question mark like mac and mabel that has the score and cast album that are five stars right it becomes no this it becomes this this title that almost weighs on your heart where you're like there's still so much potential like it could it could happen it could happen one day but i'm starting to think it's never going to happen <laughs> you know there's just shows there's just shows like that like if you hear the when you listen to the cast album of baker's wife yeah think, another great, great example show. this show must be sensational example. and then you go to see it and you're like well, she has a choice between this old man and this this young guy who who uh, is clearly he's like a Don Juan, and she has to pick one or the other. It's like Jean-Viev doesn't have to choose between these two guys. There's lots of other guys she could choose from, but they make it seem like these are the only two. It's the and only possibility. It, it kills the momentum of the show. And there are shows like that. I'm, I'm I know people are going to get mad. I feel this way about Merrily We Roll Along. Mm. You listen to that cast album or any any of the many cast albums there are now. For and they're sure. all good. They're all good. And then you see the show and you just, why is it going backwards? Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, they've tried running it forwards. They've tried doing it forwards. It, it, it's, the characters are not appealing. And that's a little bit, I think, what happened with Mac and Mabel. When I talked to Jerry, Jerry said... Uh, you know, well, our problem with that show was, um, you know, Mac wasn't very romantic, and he and Jerry solved that problem mwah, beautifully. He in my favorite song from the show, "I Won't Send Roses," mm. because he tells her, "I'm I'm not a romantic guy. I won't send roses. I won't hold the door. I won't remember what dress you wore." But then at the end, he says, "I won't send roses, and roses suit you so," mm. and it's just a lovely tag to that. But you know. Another problem, Robert Preston. Oh, my God, it's the music man. And and Bernadette, and she's so pretty. But he was 30 years older than she was. And it's a little creepy. I'm sorry. I'm married to a woman who's the same age as I am. I think it's <laughs> important to have, you know, be age appropriate. Absolutely. And, 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 and you know something? And I noticed by the second act, I noticed they never looked at each other. They never like looked in each other's eyes. They ne- you never saw like a, a, a connection between them. Mm. It was just she wanted to be a star and he wanted uh, to make the world laugh. And uh, you never saw their romance. And if you don't see the romance in that show, you have no show. So true. Well, let's talk about some of the real life people in this in the show. Um, because early film is... Fascinating. Have, did you see Babylon, the the film Babylon that came out? I did not, but I have seen a bunch of uh, Keystone comedies. Yeah, sure, and and and, and seen them and see how they worked and see how. Uh, I mean, for years ago, I was fascinated with this show. Made me fascinated with silent films, uh, Same. which are misnamed, by the way. The films themselves were silent, but when they were presented. They would have live piano accompaniment. I also love movies, and I go to a every year. I go to a twenty-four hour science fiction marathon where we watch twelve to fourteen sci-fi movies in a row. And every year they try to do something really interesting. So one year they played Metropolis, and they brought in a live piano player to play an original score to that silent film. And that's the way most people heard it in those days. And and I talked to the guy afterward, and he said, well, you know, in the old days, they wouldn't, like, play from a a pre-written score. They would improvise. And sometimes they'd throw it. And when you're improvising and you have to do it fast while you're watching the movie, sometimes they hadn't seen the movie before. And they would, sometimes they would, uh, they'd use pieces of classical music or pop songs or, like, anything that they could pull at that moment to reflect 
the, to illustrate the emotion that they were seeing on the scene. And throughout the show, it uses different kinds of music that was played to silent films and also some uh, music from the teens and music from the 20s. Uh, nowadays, people don't necessarily, you know, they don't remember that. That's right. one of the problems, I think, with Mac and Mabel. By the time it came along, it's like the musical Chaplin. By the time it came along, most of the fans didn't know who Chaplin was. Right. Most of the, when Mac and Mabel came along, it was like Mac and Mabel who? Yeah. It was yeah. 1974. They, they, uh, the Keystone, Keystone had gone belly up in the early 20s. Hey, listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii, so now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you... It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors Fresh Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I'm exactly like you in that Mac and Maple got me more interested in early film. And so I did some deep diving into who Mac Sennett and Mabel Norman actually were. Mac Sennett, born in Canada, uh, started making films uh, very much along the line of the plot of Mac and Mabel, started making films in New York and then ultimately went to uh, California where he opened his studio, Keystone. He was known as the king of comedy and certainly his films gave many stars their first appearance on film, Mabel Norman, obviously, but also Charlie Chaplin, Fatty Arbuckle, Marie Dressler, like just iconic type actors of the of the era. What's interesting about him is that his comedy, which involves lots of pies in the face, it involves the Keystone Cops, all these kind of zany things, is is a little bit like math. A plus B equals comedy, right? And and no one pretended that what we were doing was art. Is that's a line in the show? Absolutely, that's very accurate. And it makes for a really fascinating character because you you have somebody who's a little bit prickly, a little bit cold, not really interested in personality, bringing comedy to life, but timing, like exact timing, mathematical timing. So I, I immediately think Max Senna is the perfect Jerry Herman type character because it's somebody who's trying to make the world laugh and yet can't figure out how to say I love you in his personal life. You know, like that, that innate optimism that is existing somewhere in his body and he can't get it out. I think that is the perfect vehicle for, for a, a Jerry Herman score. What do you think? Well, well, when I talked to Jerry, I, I, this was in the, um, 2000s, early 2000s, and he hadn't had a hadn't had a show in Broadway since Lacage, which was 20 years before. And I was like, "Why aren't we seeing any more Jerry Herman musicals?" And he said, "He said that I respond viscerally mm. to certain types of stories." He said, "Usually it's women." He says, "Usually uh, female characters, uh, or I guess in the case of Lacage, you know, characters who have a feminine side." Sure. Um, he said those, he said their stories, when they have a plight, uh, there's something that they're, that, that there's missing from their lives. He said, that's something that is, is always going to literally strike a chord in me. And he said, and I haven't heard a story like that. Mm. He said, I have to go with what affects me, what moves me, what inspires me. And he says, and I just, he said, people send me things all the time. He said, every morning there's, there's a, a stack of scripts waiting for me. He said, but. Nothing that has really uh, inspired me. And so I think, you know, Dolly and Mame were so perfect for him, as the way you're describing. The uh, Mad Woman of Shio, which was the uh, inspiration for... Uh, Dear World. Dear World. Uh, also had a character like that. 
the problem is, I think Mame and and uh, Dolly were very extroverted characters. Yes. Whereas uh, the, the Mad Woman, she was kind of an introverted character, and that whole story was kind of it's small. Pretty quiet. And and and, uh, and I think that's they kept wanting to try to make it bigger, and you know. If anybody could do it, Jerry could do it, but he didn't. He, he didn't quite do it. I just saw uh, Dear World again um, just a couple of weeks ago at Encore with Donna Murphy. Uh, with Donna Murphy, my and gosh, Brooks Ashmanskis. It was just ever everybody in the wonderful casting, wonderful casting, and the show still it just it just didn't quite land. Hmm. Mac and Mabel, yes, big big movies on a movie screen, Entertainment World. And do you know what what I'm realizing by talking about this is that what works for me about this show is actually a little bit more candor and ebb. <laughs> yes. It's a little bit more Kiss of the Spider Woman, if you will, where like the juxtaposition of what they're able to create on screen versus what they're not able to really conjure up in, in their interpersonal life. Like that's that's fascinating, that's great, but it's it's probably not in Jerry's wheelhouse as much because he's because he's so open hearted. He's so like what you see is what you get, you know. And you mentioned Kiss, uh Kiss of the Spider Woman. One of one of the great things about Kiss of the Spider Woman, yes, those two characters are in a jail cell together and they don't like they don't get along and, and so there's conflict there. How do we get out of that jail cell? Well, when he has his fantasies, mm-hmm. his movie fantasies where he works out the things that are uh, that are bothering him in life or the things that are troubling him and he goes into the world of the spider woman yeah then the show opens up but the, and then it can come back down again and that needed to happen let's talk real fast about how it came to be so from what i was able to find out la civic light opera go west mm-hmm. coast that's where it um, originated. is it edwin lester i think was the original producer Good old Edwin Lester. <laughs> he, uh, he was he, quite a force for many years. He approached Jerry Herman with this idea and was like, what do you think? And Jerry was like, cool, let's do it. And then, as you mentioned, all the whole Hello Dolly team you know, reconvened, including the abominable showman, showman himself, Mr. David Merrick. So you had David Merrick, you had Gower Champion, Jerry Herman. Now, I find that during the 60s, like you mentioned with Dames at Sea, musical theater starts exploring its relationship to early film. And in particular, its relationship to early film by means of spoofing it in like Dames at Sea, Curly McDimple, I think was another, which means even more particularly spoofing early film by using Bernadette Peters as the leading role. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of momentum building of musical theater exploring film, their relationship to it. And then in the 70s, it starts getting a little bit more interesting with Mac and Mabel, Day in Hollywood Night in Ukraine. In- Which also had a Jerry Herman song in it. Exactly. And then in the 80s, it becomes just a full recreation of the golden age Hollywood musicals in the form of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Singing in the Rain and Meet Me in St. Louis. But I don't think through all of that, I don't think we ever quite figure out our relationship to film. It, it felt like the, the deepest we were able to go as an art form was to say something like, isn't film fun? We'll always have a leg up because we're going to do it live in front of you. Like that's as kind of as deep as it ever got. Yes, the Keystone Cops were great, but they're going to be even better tonight because we're going to do it live in front of your faces. There were moments in the show where I kept thinking to myself, you know, why don't they just show the... the uh, Interesting. Why don't they show the movies? And that's kind, uh, well, of, that's I mean, kind I mean, of been our struggle with film becoming so huge is that how, how do we top it? How do we stay relevant as film gets more and more popular? Well, you know, it wasn't always that way. When they first... First uh, films first started coming out. Theater was still considered the king. Mm-hmm. It was considered kind of déclassé for you to go and work in. Uh, oh, absolutely. And the same thing happened then when TV came along. It was considered, oh, they were, they've been they've been uh, reduced to doing to television. Do TV. Um, <laughs> uh, so there was a little bit of that, and sadly, that that whole philosophy 
cost us memories of some wonderful stars. There were Marilyn Miller. There were all these wonderful stars that were so successful on Broadway that they felt they never had to do movies. Mm. William Gaxton. William Gaxton. Every, everybody wrote shows for William Gaxton. He was a huge star at the time. The Gershwins, Rogers and Hart, they all wrote so shows for him. And he was so busy, he's like... I don't need to do movies. I'm such a big star. And now we don't have we have hardly any clips of these people. And so you know what happens? They're forgotten. Hmm. The people who are even Merman. I mean there's some Merman's people a do great have kind example. of an image of Merman, but Merman was never did never did well in movies. I mean look, Angela Lansbury will live forever. We know her for all of her great Tony winning performances. But even Sweeney Todd, um, at least we have her, at least we have her performance in Sweeney Todd that has been preserved. I'm so happy about. But people will remember her more for Murder She Wrote. Unfortunately, that's the the tragedy of the live theater. It's ethereal. Yeah. But uh, just to your point, there was a time when theater was considered more bigger than movies, and as time went along, gradually, you know, movies kind of became more. Uh, prestigious yeah. than than the theater, and now it's kind of like we do Broadway shows about movies. Yeah, there's definitely been a flip. Do you think though that there is a quintessential or a best stage musical about making movies? Because I don't think we've quite created one yet. I don't. I, no. I still don't think that we have mastered that. I think that no, there are than... a lot of great movies about creating theater. But I don't think that there are a lot of great mu musicals, stage musicals about creating movies. No, because I, I, I don't. I think there's still a little resentment about mm. movies. I Fair mean, point. except when you do, um, uh, you know, an adaptation of a of a film. Sure, it's true. I agree with you. So once the whole team creates Mac and Mabel, it does a full national tour. Before yeah, it was it, at the Muni. They did it at the you know, there's 14,000 seats at the Muni. For people who may not know, the Muni's a legendary outdoor theater in uh, in Missouri. But it starts out on the West Coast and then, like you said, hits the Muni, goes to Washington. It gets pretty decent reviews. They did say, I, I read somewhere that they felt like the Muni was a horrible place to stop on this tour because it didn't help the tone or the style of the show to be playing things that big for that big of a house mm -hmm. to then end up on Broadway in theaters that, you know, to be perfectly honest, are not, um, not as huge as some of our regional houses. Biggest theater is like 2,000 seats. Yeah. The Radio City Music Hall is over 5,000. Yeah, crazy. So when it does end up on Broadway, like you mentioned, critics didn't love it. It opens in 1974 in, in a legendary Broadway season that also included The Wiz, which was the big winner at the Tony Awards. Uh, Mac and Mabel, despite... The score of Mac and Mabel wasn't even nominated well, that's for a Tony Award, you but read, the friggin' read my mind. lieutenant was nominated. <laughs> so I was just going to take us through. I saw the lieutenant. <laughs> I was just going to take us through. So the, the musicals nominated four best musical in this Broadway season were Mac and Mabel, so it did get a best musical Tony nom, The Lieutenant, Shenandoah, and The Wiz. The Wiz wins. For score, the nominations went to The Wiz, which wins, go Charlie Smalls, Shenandoah, The Lieutenant, which I've never heard before in my life, and you'll have to sing me a song from it because I don't know Awful. It. <laughs> it's about it's the My Lai massacre. It's a musical uh, d during um, during the Vietnam War. Um, they, a lieutenant Lieutenant Cali uh, ordered that this entire village be wiped out. Oh my gosh! So they killed men, women, and children this in this Vietnamese musical? village, and they made a musical out of it called The Lieutenant. Oh, good gravy! And then the the last nomination went to Letter for Queen Victoria. Which, mm -hmm. once again, couldn't sing you a song from If My Life Depended On It, even if the lieutenant was about to kill my entire village. It was music, really, basically. And it was, um, they were, I, I don't know why that got nominated and Mac and Mabel did not. During that period of time, the New York Times um, had a critic who felt that traditional musicals, that we needed to get rid of the sound of original musicals, that kind of Broadway sound. Mm-hmm. Um, Which Jerry Herman rock, that, is the <laughs> quintessential that rock example. Rock musicals were the way to go. 
Yeah. And so the most powerful critic on Broadway was Clive Barnes. Anytime there was a musical with a traditional score, uh, he would he would torpedo it. Hmm. And in those days, it's hard to, you know, now we've un- undergone this democratization of criticism where, you know, people go on the on the web and they want to talk to other ticket buyers to get information about shows. The critics are not as powerful as they once were. But Hallelujah. in those days, the New York Times could still make or break a show. And they definitely broke Mac and Mabel. Interesting. All right. Well, one of the <laughs> this is where the story gets even more interesting. After Mac and Mabel flops on Broadway, the next big kind of cultural footprint for it came in the form of, and I am not kidding about this, Olympic ice skating. Torval and Dean. Torval and Dean. Torval and Dean. Who are these ice dancers? Are they from the UK? Is that right? Am I remembering that? I don't know. Anyway. I'm sorry. We're outside of musical theater. I know. Sorry. Now we're in sports, even though it is ice skating. But they win an Olympic gold medal for ice dancing, skating to the overture of Mac and Mabel. And it was such a sensation that it honestly gave a little bit more fuel to the Mac and Mabel fire of like, wow, this this music is incredible because it is. And you've already mentioned it. That overture is just absolutely glorious. But who knew ice skating would help us keep uh, Mac and Mabel in the collective consciousness. <laughs> well, it's interesting also, if you look at the history, the post-Broadway history, English people seem to like the show better than Americans. It got a lot of attention in revivals. It was at the Chichester Festival. It was it was done a bunch of times. Never made a nickel, sure. but it kept it kept getting done because... People hear that, hear that. It's like uh, it's like Baker's Wife. People hear that score and they think, "I got to do this show. This is I'm gonna I'm gonna rescue this show from obscurity." That's how I feel. So I'm I'm in Maui, and I remember when I first arrived here. There's this mall really close to me. It's called the Kaumanu Mall, and it's this beautiful kind of open space. And it's beautiful, but of course it is also a mall, and malls are very struggling right now, brick and mortar. And so in addition to like the beautiful scenery and vegetation and kind of everything in the center, there's maybe a Victoria's Secret and a Macy's. You know, like that that's all that there is to it. And I remember going to it for the first time and telling uh, somebody I was working with, oh, wow, this place has so much potential. And they gave me such an eye roll, like, oh, I can tell you're new on Maui. You got the old potential thing going on. (laughs) And now I understand what he's saying. But I feel that way a little bit about Mac and Mabel, too, which is like you have this feeling of, oh, there's so much potential. And and, and anyway, it it makes me laugh. I see my my foolishness sometimes in it. (laughs) Well, they've tried. They've tried. In fact, they even rewrote the ending. So that they wind up in each other's arms at the end, which, of course, had nothing to do with with real life. In real life, their romance kind of petered out. She became a drug addict. She was involved in a number of Hollywood scandals Scandals. that are are not mentioned. Uh, And then, you know, she died in 1930. He lived on to 1960. Um, She died of tuberculosis. uh, Very young. Certainly. In her 30s, she died. I know, I know. It's crazy. Now, if you see her, if you actually see her performing if you look her movies are all over the internet can you can see what she did she did look a lot like bernadette peter and i made a joke about you know bernadette being in all of these shows that were spoofing early film but you look at her face and it seems like a match made in heaven because bernadette was a modern embodiment of this old school silent film star with the porcelain mm-hmm. skin and the big round eyes and I mean, it's and the Cupid doll mouth. Like it, it, she, yeah. she was old and new in one like perky little package. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. It's so cool. And she was very attractive, as was uh, uh, Mabel. As Mabel was Mabel. Had, she was such a perfect mime because that's a lot of what they were doing in those movies was mime. Yeah. And her face was so expressive; she could just like shoot somebody like a little, you know. A side glance at them and you could tell her entire attitude toward the person that she was looking at just from that one little that one little flicker of side eye um and she she just did a million things like that you're so right i've watched a few of her films that are still available and man she could communicate so much 
with that mm-hmm. face. In preparation for this episode, I read the script. I went through the the whole script. The original. The original, the original script. script. Uh-huh. Okay. And so I'd like to talk through it just a little bit with you to help people understand what we're working with. <laughs> uh, but the show begins with this glorious overture that we've talked about over and over again. But truly, I only second to maybe Gypsy in my book, Is There a Better Overture? After the overture, though, we meet Max Sennett pretty early on. Yeah, he comes in. He's immediately yelling at people because he's a prickly dude. And he launches into When Movies Were Movies, which is the song about how... It's a song that both celebrates his contribution to movies and also is fueled by the e- his ego saying that it was best when he was in charge. That's right. That's right. You have to remember when that song was being sung, you were watching his movies. Mm. You were watching clips from his movies. And uh, it's it's kind of better when you when you have the visuals. Yeah. I mean there there are a few songs like that where they don't come across on cast album as they do in the live theater. Mm. Um, and that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, and you're seeing all these. If you remember, there's kind of a, an instrumental break in the song. Yeah. And you're watching his. You're watching his movies. How cool! Uh, during that scene, which was yeah, very helpful. Uh, and and he makes a he makes a good case. He makes a good case. Um, and he narrates this entire thing he, to the audience. That's right. He'll pop in and out of you know the scenes, basically saying, "Oh, if only I had known," or you know what I mean, with yes. with some sort of twenty twenty hindsight. I mean, I would have loved to have Mabel be a, a narrator herself, and maybe it was kind of like a dual narratorship with them both telling their sides of story. You know what? Whatever it would be, something to bring her up to his level. Instead of just being this prop, because then once he meets her, which, by the way, it's a it's a great entrance. She comes yeah. in and, and is delivering a sandwich, sandwich. to one of right. uh, Max Sennett's actors. They don't she, like the sandwich and they don't like the sandwich, but she's demanding that like she get paid for it. And there's this whole you know, like kerfuffle, a series of comedic things happen where like she grabs a sandwich and then slugs it with someone else and there's like a prop baby that gets thrown and mm-hmm. and it's comedy genius right and so Max and it sing, sees it and is like this girl's a star she may just be you know Nelly from the deli but get ready world and that's our Hitler that's our Hitler exactly <laughs> <laughs> and so Mabel becomes this star she becomes his new star they meet cute meet cute that's yep. that's the the goal and when you have to get into the romance as fast as possible you need something like that now the musical makes it sound like Mabel was really just his star that he made and her contribution to film was was best when he was in charge but the truth is, is that she became a director. She had her own film studio. She was a writer. She wrote on many Charlie Chaplin films. So like her, once again, her contribution to film is not completely tied to Max Sennett. And I think that there are some real missed opportunities to to explore that. Did you ever see Sideshow? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. About the, uh, um, uh, the conjoined twins. Yes, the Hilton twins. In the Hilton sisters. I did some research into the Hilton sisters after the Hilton sisters retired from the follies and from vaudeville, they opened up a hotel for theatricals and all these famous theater people came through and stayed at their hotel. And the two of them were at the front desk. And I said, there's your musical. (laughs) Instead, they have this scene of these two guys. They're not sure if they love them or not. And you know, they're, they're conjoined. I I can't be with you, but I want to be with you. Let's go to the hotel. Hotel. Get with all those other stars coming in. There's your musical, and I think there Mac and Mabel suffers from that a little bit too. They f- they focused on, in some ways, the l- least interesting parts, certainly of Mabel's life. Yeah, not the least interesting, but there was more to her story than just oh, I took heroin and died. There, there she did a lot of stuff after Mac. Yeah, and she. Had I took heroin and died. I'm sorry. I'm still stuck on that one. <laughs> that's the that's um, the second act. That's the, basically the second act. The most interesting parts of Mabel in this musical are her songs. She gets "Look <sighs> What Happened to Mabel," which is her you know transformation song, 
and mm-hmm. just couldn't be more exciting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic. She gets uh, wherever he ain't, which is when she finally starts to stand up for herself. And, and because Mac is very abusive and very controlling to yes, the point he where He's he, terrible. he controls her acting with numbers. Like when, when I say one, you go and do this. When I say two, you go and do this. And that, and because they didn't have to worry about sound, he can literally, you know, call those numbers out during the performance. Uh, and that's what they got on film. So in the musical, what happens is they explore this relationship that she had with another filmmaker and kind of make it his fault that she, like, starts going away from Well, Mac. it's because he lets her... She wants to do drama, and he says that if you come and work for me, I'll, I'll, I'll put I'll, you in a I'll big, I'll make a a big dramatic film. star. Right. Which, I that's just not... Not true at all. She gets to sing, though, um, Tile, Time Heals Everything, which was kind of her if if uh, if he walked into my life today yeah. from Mame. Uh, that was kind of that, tor- that big, torchy song for for her in the second act and yes that's what i'm saying when you listen to that cast album you think oh this show is like a a lost masterpiece the score is jerry said it was his favorite score yeah i think that's a great choice jerry Herman. he told me face right to my face he said you know uh, and, and he has said this to others as well he, he usually he demurs when people ask him this and he says well you know you can't say that you like one child better than another fair enough but when he talked to me he did not demur he said Mac and Mabel, and he says, and that's the show that broke my heart because I really thought that was going to be my biggest hit. Mm. That's so sad. But then you even go back, you know, Jerry Herman at this point has become, I think, our most covered composer on the podcast because we've done Hello, Dolly. We've done the Grand Tour. We did the Grand Tour with Jason Grah. We've done Lacage. We've done, am I missing another one? Madam Aphrodite. <laughs> oh, milk and honey, and we also milk do and milk honey. and honey. And you even go back this to milk and is honey. The land of milk, milk and honey. honey. But you you even go back to that that score and the rich, gorgeous stuff that he composed for that score. In addition to the jaunty, optimistic tunes as well, fertile is the right word. I wish he'd done more. Hey listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii, so now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you. It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is, because it's May. And we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together, and Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, You'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. So some of the other players in the show that get a lot of uh, airtime, kind of this old hoofer named Lottie, who was originally played by Lisa Kirk. Who was Lisa Kirk? Do you know who she was? Yes. Like, yes. I, she she was in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Allegro. She was Allegro. in Allegro, and she okay. sang "The Gentleman Is a Dope." She was that was her. Oh, she's that the was original her "Gentleman Is a Dope." That's right. Oh wow, she really is billed in this show, kind of like the and also starring Lisa. You know, so I knew she was somebody, but I didn't I didn't know that. That's really cool. Uh, but don't forget, it was only twenty years or a little over twenty years, twenty five years earlier. So. Um, it it didn't it didn't seem it seemed like it was much much earlier but it wasn't that much earlier right so Lottie is one of his players one of Max Sennett's players and as the story progresses she's kind of the voice of reason she's the one the like the the sassafras Maggie from Forty Second Street who's going to put you in your place and tell you how it is sort of thing 
And then she also gets a couple of great songs, particularly when Mac's career goes to hell in a handbasket because sound comes on, right? All of a sudden, he can't do his crazy directing, yelling out things when uh, motion pictures go to sound. However, Lottie, who has been this ex-vaudeville hoofer, uh, you have tap dance, you have her vocals, and now she becomes the star that she probably always should have been. But she sings what I consider to be the worst song on the show. You don't like and, Tap or, Your Troubles Away? Let me put it this away. way. My least favorite song on the show is Tap Your Troubles Away. I got to say, uh, though, if that's your least favorite song, that's a pretty good score. Well, I, it's a wonderful <laughs> score. That's why I wanted to discuss this show, because I love it. But she lists all these troubles that you can have. And and it was it, it just it was a vulgarity to the song that I did not associate with Jerry Herman. When a sky full of crap always lands in your lap, Give a big smile and tap, tap your troubles away. It was just like, Bleh. did I need that image? I didn't. A sky full of crap. Where did that come from? That's not my Jerry Herman wrote that, that line. And there's other other things. The whole uh, litany of, of uh, terrible things that could happen to you. But you could just tap your troubles away. That's so um, interesting. Gower Champion, who was the director. He also directed Dolly. I mean, he was one of the great directors of that period. Director choreographers. The show didn't dance as much as it should have danced. And you would think with something like the Keystone Cops to work with. Yeah. Uh, there's a song in the show called Every Time a Cop Falls Down, My Heart Leaps Up. <laughs> it's great. And um, great lyric. what he decided to do was to do it all in slow motion so that you could see all the things that the, the cop, the cops with a K were doing. Interesting. But you know something? That's not the way... To watch the cops, the cops were funny because because they were they were moving so fast. And of course, in those days, the the cameras were hand cranked, and so it was hard to play them back and have it be the movement be consistent. Also, they used a very um, a very low number of frames per second when they mm. were when they were taking those films. So when they would play them back in contemporary. Uh, projectors, they would they were like this. They would they would look like they were moving around really fast, and and people would laugh at that. But they said, "Why do they do that? Why do they do that?" The original films they did do that. Gower had a lot of movement things that he could have done, and of all the things that he could have done, he had the Keystone Cops move in slow motion. That's that's a missed opportunity. It was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, another song that I'm not crazy about from the show is the um, that Thousands of Girls song, the, which like is the bathing very, beauties. you know, non-PC today. But you know something? Even in that time, it seemed a little creepy, to tell you the truth. Although that sh- that number was staged in a very interesting way. He had the girls come down this this spiral slide. They would, they would slide down this thing and they would land on the stage. And uh, it was it was very dramatic, but it was just... Yes, he liked uh, thousands of girls, and uh, but you know something that was even then it was something I don't know, kind of odd about that song. Did you feel that, that way like... about because he later, you know, did Dames in Forty Second Street, just you know, a couple of years yep. later? Mm-hmm. So did you feel that way about that song, or was there? It was more specifically with this one. I don't know why. That I did not. That did not affect me the same way. Maybe because it's dames versus girls. Sure, that's the okay. only thing that I can think of. Because dames are, are full grown women, whereas girls, you, you're 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 belittle, literally belittling them. Um, well, and, and especially also, since since Preston was, you know, he was he was born again, in 1918, so he was already in his like late fifties when he was doing this, and I, I don't know. I don't know. It it, it 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 rubbed me the wrong way. I'll put it that put it to you that way. Well, and once again, I think that there it, there's some interesting and kind of dark undertones of uh, of what's going on in the story, which is that like he can't have Mabel, and so instead of having her, he's going to have hundreds of girls. You know, right. like that's what's underneath it all. Right. So that there's definitely discomfort. It's not just a celebration of women. It's like almost an addict type trying to fill a void that is left by this person, right? And meanwhile, he treated her like a, a, just as big a star as the men. Yeah. And they, I think they could have emphasized that a little bit more instead of just making her uh, the object of his uh, romance. <sighs> Maybe I should do a Patreon where I sit down and 
and like rewrite Mac and Maple just for me. <laughs> but the problem is, is that at least how I understand it is that Michael Stewart's family is very protective of his writing. And so like no new book writer has ever been able to come on and like give it another world. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate to me. It is unfortunate. It is unfortunate. We may have to wait until the, uh, the 2040s, you know, the 2030s, 2040s before some of these things are finally, finally get done. Look how long we had to wait for a, a, a revival of funny girl. It's a good point. You know, it's, it, it Three generations we had to wait? Two generations before we could get that uh, revival of Funny Girl? That's so true. Like, can you imagine if David Lindsay Abair came in and, like, gave Mac and Mabel a new book? Like, that could be cool. You know, I was in the BMI Musical Theater uh, workshop. Were you? As a librettist. And I wrote a couple of librettos that um, I can tell you right now were terrible. (laughs) Writing a libretto was really hard. Sure. Um, And so I have to say... Composers, they deserve to get the applause they get. But you know something? If it wasn't for the librettist, the librettist tells the basic story. And without a good basic story, you can write the best songs in the world. And they're just going to go... And again, and like I I love um, uh, orchestrators. And Phil Lang, who is the orchestrator of Mac and Mabel, he managed to... um, really incorporate the sound of that period into the into the score beautifully absolutely the, at the beginning of time here's uh, time heals everything you hear that that uh, that saxophone that's yeah. right and it just it just pulls you right pulls you right into the song before she said a word you're already inside that song so uh, uh, i just wanted to pause for a moment and yes. give props to uh, the orchestrators and the librettists. Because what they did actually did work, yeah? Incredible. Well, the well, librettists the certainly did good work on Mac and Mabel. I mean, the uh, orchestrators certainly did master work on Mac and Mabel, but the librettist, unfortunately, and, you know, maybe he was given he was given an impossible task to, to write a, a love story about two people who whose love just kind of falls apart, and there's no second act in that show. Yeah. That's what the critic the critics said that it was too gloomy. They said it was too gloomy in this which it was. It was too gloomy. Uh, nowadays I think um a story like that could do better. It doesn't have to have a happy ending. Yeah. Even though uh even though Mac does say, I promise you a happy ending and then they didn't deliver a happy ending. Right. So um So when you I, saw it, did they have the pretend marriage? No. Okay. So No, it, not that I remember. If if it was in there in the original production, I don't remember it. Because I'm pretty sure in the script, at least the one that I read, you know, they get to this point where it's uh, it's sad. Mabel's addicted to angel dust, cocaine, which, by the way, I did some research and there isn't a lot of evidence about her drug addiction other than she was hanging around with a lot of people who were convicted of that sort of thing. Like you said, she had a couple of scandals that, in, including like a, a murder that had been committed with right. her pistol. She didn't pull the trigger, but it was her gun, that sort of thing. So her life kind of devolves pretty quickly, and Mac watches it and is unable to do anything about it. In the musical, he convinces her to come back and filmed this movie called Molly, which is a, 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 very, a much more serious script that's worthy of her talents. The movie never is released, and they don't end up together. But Mac's like, that's not how we're going to end this version of the story. We're going to end with a big wedding. And so then there's this fantasy sequence that comes to life of him and her getting married at the end. And like that was the new little stamp that they put on the show to try and make it a happy ending. But once again, like had nothing to do with the actual story or the actual people. No, they, 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 uh, once you have a song, I promise you a happy ending. You kind of have to deliver that even either, whether it's in this actual story or not. Okay. Well, I enjoy talking about the show, but I honestly just really enjoy talking to you. So now I'm, I'm just going to ask you some questions. <laughs> Because we've talked about Mac and Mabel, it almost makes me feel a little sad because I love it so much and want more for it than it wants for itself. So and that was the critical reaction when it opened, exactly what you were saying. Interesting. People so, felt sad. So you went to the BMI workshop. Did you meet Lehman Engel? 
I, I used to go to some of the uh, BMI workshop uh, presentations when Lehman was running it. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but when I was in it, I was only in it for two years, 1996 to 1998. Uh, Lehman was gone and other people had taken over. Gotcha. What did you get from it? We talk about that workshop a lot on the show because it, you know, has brought so many of our modern day composing teams together. Well, I felt that the composer workshop had people who had written shows. Hmm. Composers were teaching the workshop. The librettist workshop at that time, I won't say who, who was running it, but it was somebody who had done one Broadway show and it had flopped. Interesting. And that was the entire, this person's entire background. This person was very respected. And I think a lot of people expected that she was going to do great things. But at that time, the, the, the big, uh, the, the big popular shows were things like Floyd Collins and, um, Violet mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, shows that were are, were wonderful shows, but there was a there was a, a sense of rejecting shows that had been successful. Phantom of the Opera, <laughs> that yeah. stuff is crap. Um, populist, uh, populist stuff, and and I was like, well, but those those shows, the audiences love them, but shows. they work. And uh, they would say, oh, oh, you don't want to write that. You want to write like a show like Violet, which is a really terrific show, which it is. Well, it is a terrific but show. I felt like they were, I felt like they were teaching me how to write flops. We never had a librettist come down to the workshop to talk about what they did and how they did their uh, careers. You know how they, how they did what they did, how they did their magic. What were their mistakes? What did they learn from their mistakes? We never got any of that. Basically, we would talk amongst ourselves. So we were basically pooling our ignorance. <laughs> and it would be like that would be like having a Spanish class where people knew how to say chili con carne and not much else. And then trying to learn Spanish from each other and never bringing in a Spanish speaker. It was the same thing. We were they were teaching us how to write librettos without anybody who knew how to write librettos. Uh, or had had successful librettos, or even who had had like seven flop librettos, and but had learned a lot from it. Again, we only talked to one another, so we were only breathing each other air. And after two years, it was like, and you know something, I learned well because I wrote three librettos, which I still have on my shelf here, and they're all terrible. So I re- I learned how to write flops. So um, I sh- I should have gotten a good grade in that. So the, I will say I don't I don't want to downgrade the the BMI program. No, the no, BMI no. program for songwriters is wonderful. Yeah. They have they they bring in people who know what they're talking about. It's run by people who know what they're talking about, and they uh, they present songs and then they're critiqued. And it's it's really a wonderful way to. Um, you know, Rogers and Hart, you know, they would write like three musicals a year and, you know, a couple of them would flop and a couple of them would be, would be hits and they would learn by doing. Mm-hmm. And there's no place really where you can do that type of thing anymore. So the workshops are, are the best thing we have uh, uh, to do that. So ASCAP has a wonderful workshop. BMI has a wonderful workshop. But at least during the period that I was involved, they, they uh, I, I wouldn't say that they were doing as good a job as they could have done. Mm. Uh, thank you Robert Viaga so much for doing this with me what a great opportunity to learn and to connect I really appreciate you as always if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast just like our friends Bobby and Avery you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com don't forget to follow us on social media Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok We've also got Patreon exclamation point where for only $1 a month you can receive bonus episodes and we also have our Tee Public store, our profits of which go to uh, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. Please know I'm so grateful for you being part of this great podcasting community and if you really want to help the show, you leave us a nice review and a good rating. Yeah. Hey, Robert, how do we follow you and what do you have coming up for us? Well, um... I, I do a lot of uh, talks. I do um, 
I do presentations. I have a coming up. I'm going to be doing a series of lectures on the Tony Awards once the nominations come out. Ooh, I, was I love a, that. I was a Tony voter for 20 years, and for three years, I served a term as a Tony nominator. Yes. So when those nominations come out, and you think, who are the idiots who came out with these nominations? <laughs> I was guilty as charged. So uh, I have 22 books that I've uh, published. Uh, Incredible. 21 of them about the theater and one about golf. Uh, I don't know how that happened. What? But anyway, I have two that were published in uh, the last year. I have a... Um, a book about Broadway ghosts. It's called oh. Good Morning Olive. Why call Good Morning Olive? It's about the ghost that haunts, who haunts the uh, New Amsterdam Theater, Olive Thomas. And uh, it's, these are not ghost stories from a thousand years ago. These are not things that I pulled off the internet. These are, during my 24 years at Playbill, I collected ghost stories from people who actually believe that they had had a ghostly experience at the Broadway theaters. One thing that I find is interesting, there's certain theaters where I would get where I would get ghost stories and they were pretty consistent from person to person, year to year, people who didn't know each other, they would always describe the ghost the same way. Wow. Uh, and there are certain theaters that never had ghosts. It was almost as if some of the theaters had ghosts and some did not. <laughs> So anyway, so my book, Good Morning Olive, which is out now, uh, is ghost stories from all over the world that I have collected almost exclusively from uh, first person, from people who have actually told me their stories. Wow. Uh, How but fun. But coming, coming up this summer, I have a new book that uh, I'm very excited about. It, it, I call it my, my, uh, my masterwork, uh, if, if I may, because it involves everything that I have experienced uh, throughout my career on Broadway, I've seen more than 2,000 Broadway shows. Just on Broadway, I've seen many off-Broadway and around the world. I saw shows in India. I saw shows in China. I just I, Every place I go, I see a show. So I decided that we have, we have story, we have books about famous actors. We have books about famous writers, famous composers, famous directors. There's many, many books about the people who create what we see at the theater. But I've never seen a book about the most important collaborator of all, the audience. No one has ever written a history of the audience. And it's a very interesting history. So it's called Write This Way. It's uh, a history of the audience, going back to the Greeks and coming right up to uh, this year. Wow. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I went to the National Archive, where they have a record of people who were there at Ford's Theater the night Lincoln was assassinated. Most of the accounts tell what happened backstage and things like that. Nobody talks about what it was like to sit there and watch Lincoln get shot. And a lot of these, don't forget, night Lincoln was assassinated, it was on a Friday. Appomattox, the surrender of the South, had taken place on Monday. So he'd had a busy couple of years, and so he decided, he and his wife decided, we're going to go out on Friday night, we're going to go see a show, and we're going to laugh our heads off, and we'll begin our happy new post-war uh, post life. life. And the audience was so happy to see him, and they, they loved hearing him laugh. Don't forget, they didn't have any television, so the, the only images they had of Lincoln you know, were these very serious pictures of him with the beard and that. Yeah. And he was laughing his head off, and then this horrible thing happened. Um, wow. And I have an account from these two guys who were sitting in the audience, and um, they decide when when Booth jumped out of the presidential box and ran across the stage, they decided they were going to chase him, and oh so they gosh. ran after him. But he knew his way through the back. He'd been at the theater many yeah, times yeah, as an yeah, actor. Yeah. And these guys got lost, but one of the guys said, "But I got the scoundrel's hat." <laughs> that was his big. That was his like, big moment. What a coup! Right. So I. So I've done a history of of audiences that's so fun i would love to have you on patreon as soon as that comes out so to. that we can talk about that because I, I would love to i think that audiences are so important it's got to be the reason why theater continues right otherwise it's we're just all on our couches watching netflix um so it, we we have to talk more about the importance of audiences and their relationship to us my friend my central thesis of the book is this theater doesn't happen on the stage what happens on the stage is designed to evoke theater. Theater happens in the hearts and minds of the audience. Mm. Love that. Come on. That's great. Gold Robert Viagas. Well done. 
Thank you very much. I'm very grateful for your having me on. I, I rarely get a chance to talk about Every once in a while, I'll run into Peter Felicia at a theater, and the two of us instantly get get into it. How but cute. for the most part, um, you know, I, I spend most of my life around civilians, and so I, I just have to keep it inside myself. <laughs> be, it would be lovely, lovely to, uh, you to are, talk more. You are welcome anytime. Everybody, thank you so much for listening, and uh, remember, we just want to make the world laugh, you know? That's right. That's all. That's you all we want to do. You and Max Sennett. Me and Max Sennett. We're like twins. We're like we're like the Hilton sisters creating the hotel. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.